All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you that we know in whom we have believed. And we are confident that he is able to keep that which we have committed unto him against that day, that day of his appearing. And Father, thank you that he has introduced us into your holy presence and that therefore we have a standing and a favor with him that with you that is purchased by his precious sinless blood we pray father that this place this morning might have an atmosphere that is set aside sanctified for you and in which your spirit would have liberty to work because there is no resistance here in this place in our thoughts or our attitudes may we have today a restoration of the joy of our salvation in our hearts may any burdens that we have in our lives be lifted at calvary here this morning as we open your word and hear again this great these great comforting promises that the lord jesus gave for those who love him and help us father to have an increased understanding this morning of the ministry of your holy spirit thank you for the promise that he would be given to us forever forever as an earnest a down payment for all of that future glory that shall be ours one day. And may we learn to know more about the fellowship of the Spirit. Forgive us for being so unaware of Him and His ministry in our lives. Increase our awareness of Him and, and, and have the Word illumined through Him this morning and our understanding open that we might comprehend something of the vastness of your goodness to us in giving us another comforter who will never leave us and who empowers us and leads and guides us and speaks to us and and comforts us in all of our afflictions and woes here on, on this earth. And now we pray, Father, that you would be glorified through this study of your Son, where we pray in his name. Amen. Well, this is Lesson 151, as you can see, the promised paraclete. And that's not parakeet, it's paraclete. (laughs) We have been in the midst of, and you can open up your Bibles, please, to John chapter 14. We've been in the midst of the great despair of the Lord's disciples there in the upper room on the very night of his arrest. And the Lord Jesus was focusing his attention on doing what? comforting them they were in despair and he was focused on comforting them he was about to suffer the most painful death that evil men have ever devised but what is his focus on himself i mean he knew he was going to die and what kind of death he was going to die but his focus was not on himself it was on his hurting little children And he said about giving them a number of positive, predictive promises regarding the advantages that would exist for them because of his departure. They were depressed because he told them he was leaving. But he says, there's going to be a lot of advantages for you because I do go to my father. And he began by telling them that his removal from them was not going to be permanent. He was going away to do what? To prepare eternal dwelling places for them in his father's house and then when everything was ready and they were ready he prepared the place for them but he was also preparing them for the place he would return to personally escort them to those eternal dwelling places 
And if it was not so, what did he say in verse 2? He wouldn't have told him if it wasn't so. It was positively going to happen. And then, after two interruptions, one by Tom and one by Phil, (laughs) Thomas and Philip, and his very significant responses to both of those interruptions, the Lord continued with six additional comforting promises in verses 12 to 21. And we looked at the first two of those last week. We looked at his promise of amplified performance in verse 12, and we discussed his promise of answered prayer in verses 13 and 14. And we learned that the Lord Jesus was basically telling his men and all future believers, which includes you and I, I hope everybody here is a true believer. He was basically saying, don't be upset that I will not be physically with you anymore, uh, visible to you. My return to my father's house in heaven will result in your lives being even more enriched than when I was with you. I will supervise the supply of your needs because I will intercede on your behalf before my Father in response to your prayers given in my name. Remember how we discussed what that means when you pray in Jesus' name. He says, your intimacy will actually, your intimacy with me will actually increase because I will always be just a prayer away. Your ministry will be more effective. Your inner power will be greater. Your hope will be more real. And your influence will literally reach around the globe. Because I go to the Father, and because I am one in being, and in mind, and in spirit, and in nature with the Father, you will be lifted to heights of blessing that never before did you know were possible. You will do greater works than I even did on earth. Therefore, let not your hearts be troubled. That was comforting news, wasn't it, for them? Well, in today's passage, which is going to be from verses 15 to 21, which I have entitled The Promised Paraclete, we're going to find the Lord continues to to comfort his distraught men by giving them four more fantastic promises going to be eight altogether in this uh, first section of chapter 14. That's why they call chapter 14 of John's gospel the comfort chapter of the Bible. Whenever you need comfort, turn to John 14 and remind yourself of all these wonderful promises the Lord gave us. Now, the four new promises for our discussion this morning are going to be the promise of another paraclete, the promise of his abiding presence, the promise of an assured perpetuation, and the promise of an astonishing position. And you'll understand what all those mean as we get into it. But I want to begin by really reading the entire passage so we get the whole flow of it, and then we'll break it down and discuss each one of those four promises. But let's first look at the passage starting at verse 15. Okay? He says, verse 15 of John 14, If ye love me, keep my commandments. If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you. How long, ladies? Forever. Verse 17, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. 
That's how he began. In verse 15, he says the same thing again. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. These are, this is, oh, this, this is no end to the depth of this passage. This is one of the most critical passages of the New Testament. And I kind of hate that we're going to try to get it all in one lesson, but please develop it more when you go home and study your notes and uh, even get other commentaries and read more on them because it's, these are very, very important verses. Did you know that there are three great scripture passages in the New Testament that tell us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Three great, you know, at any length, that tell us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and this is the first of those three great New Testament passages. The other one, another one happens to be also in the upper room discourse. It's over in John chapter 16, verses 7 to 15. And the third at length passage in scripture, and this is not in your notes, is found in Romans. Paul wrote about the Holy Spirit in his inspired writings from Romans 8, verses 1 to 17. Now, interestingly, we learn from Christ himself in this first passage about the Holy Spirit, about the identity of the Holy Spirit. We learn who he is. Who he he is. He's the spirit of truth. He's a comforter, another comforter. Uh, We learn his identity in this passage over in John 16, which is also directly taught by the Lord. Again, in the upper room, we learn about the work of the Holy Spirit. First passage about his identity, second passage about his work, and in Romans, Paul tells us about the power of the Holy Spirit. So those are the three critical at-length passages of the New Testament that tell us about the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, we find, is covering the major subjects that his men will need to grasp before his death. He is revealing to them precious truths that are going to help them through the upcoming trials that they are going to face in the next hours and the next days to come. And the greatest help that they and other believers are to receive is the very presence of God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, starting with verse 15, we find that the Lord stated a simple fact that must be clearly understood. He gave the single New Testament test for love. That's what he does here. Now, it's interesting. I was listening to my favorite Bible teacher of all time, Mark Minnick. Dr. Mark Minnick. And he said something that I never realized before. He said that in John 14, 15, Jesus, for the very first time, tells his men about loving him. He's always talked about his love for them. But this first time, he tells them about their love for him. And he gives the single test for love, genuine love, agape love in the New Testament. And what is that single test for love? Obedience. It's obedience. What does he say? He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience. In, in other words, um, and, and from the exact translation in the Greek, really, this verse is not an optional thing. He's not saying, and we know this from the tense of the verb, okay? So he's not saying, if you love me, then optional, please keep my commandments. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, if you love me, the proof of your genuine love will be the fact that you keep my commandments. The proof of, my, of your love is that you keep my commandments. Tereste, will keep. It's given in, a, in the future tense. 
uh, the true believer, in other words, will prove his genuine faith in Christ by what? By singing wonderful praise songs? By lip service? Oh, have you ever seen people who talk about how much they love Jesus and they, and they sing about how much they love Jesus and then they leave the church and what's the first thing they do? Disobey some of his commandments. That's not genuine. That's not a proof of genuine love. We keep his, we, we prove our love for him by obeying him. If we genuinely love the Lord, we're going to obey him. And his commandments to us will not be grievous. We will want to keep his commandments. All the sentimental talk, all the great praise singing, there's nothing wrong with that. I love praise singing. Nothing wrong with uh, talking about how much we love Jesus. Um, but all, all the outward show of sentimentality toward him and spirituality absolutely mean nothing if we don't obey him. And he says, my commandments. Did you notice that? Keep my commandments. You know, nobody, not even Moses, dared to call the commandments of Scripture his. That's another little subtle clue to his deity. They're his commandments, Jesus' commandments. Love is practical obedience, or it isn't love at all. I was thinking, you know, how, how does a superior show his love to, to one, I, don't, I hate to say superior and inferior, but for example, how does God the Father, they're all equal, but he has a role that's superior. How does God the Father show his love? By giving. How do we show our love to our children? By giving. How does the, the one beneath show his love for the superior? By obeying, right? That's why the husband gives, the wife obeys. <laughs> Ooh, that's one of those commandments, you know, might have a little trouble with, but <laughs> we keep all his commandments and we love him. <clears throat> Obedience to the Lord involves keeping his commandments regardless of what they are. You know, wives, submit to your lords. Uh, uh, your lords. <laughs> well, Sarah calls Abraham her lord. Um, or how they interfere with our lives. You know, some of those commandments, mm, that might just mess up my lifestyle. Obedience involves, you know, even if they do interfere. We don't have the option to pick and choose which ones we will obey and which ones we will ignore or disobey. If we love Jesus, we'll keep all his commandments and we will do so cheerfully and willfully and how does it all begin how does did i say that right who knows what i say um but that be, it all begins when we obey him initially at salvation he says come unto me and what do we do obey and we come unto him and we receive him that's how it all starts the genuine believer will not only initially obey but will continue a life of obedience and this truth principle about genuine love is so important that notice how many times he repeats it he says it again in verse 21 when he says he that hath my commandments and keepeth them he it is that loveth me in fact he says it again in verse 23 i didn't read that but look at verse 23 if a man love me he will what keep my words and again in verse 24 there he really gives the flip side when he says he that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings we know over in first john 2 3 it says and hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments so the lord was in effect telling his men and telling all future believers because this passage is also for you and i from now on i don't want you to show your love for me by your weeping and by your grief and that's exactly what they were doing right I don't want you to show your love for me by your depression over the fact that I'm departing from you. I want you to show your love by your obedience to me when I am gone from you. You guys are going to really need to obey me after I leave. 
So stop your crying and just start obeying. They mess up pretty fast because what does he ask them to do when they get into the Garden of Gethsemane? Pray for them and they fall asleep. Anyway. So after studying, uh, stating who qualifies for the promises that he is now about to go on and give and who it is that qual- who qualifies for the promises we're about to look at, the one who loves Jesus and whose love is proved by his obedience, he um, now launches into the first of these blessed promises, which is the promise of a supernatural comforter. He says, look at verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. First of all, notice the Trinity in this verse. There are cults that deny the Trinity, but we have the Trinity right here in this verse. The Son prays, the Father gives, and the Spirit comforts. There you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The despair of the disciples was primarily over the fact that their divine comforter for the past three years had just announced his soon departure. And the news, you know, was further depressing in that he said they could not follow him. They could not go with him, at least yet. And as far as they knew, you see, there was no hope of anyone else even remotely like him, like Jesus. Who could be like Jesus? To take his place in their lives. You know, it had been unique enough for them just to have Jesus with them for three years, right? Who in the world could fill his shoes? his sandals (laughs) they would never ever have anticipated someone else coming into their lives who could who could take the place of the lord jesus and now here is his promise about the coming of the holy spirit and this is not new revelation for you and i is it i mean we've heard this we know about the coming of the holy spirit But can you imagine the disciples hearing this for the first time? This is great, fantastic, new revelation to them. Um, For the first time, they're hearing the Lord's promise, his request. They're hearing about his request to the Father to send them another comforter. And it's a shame, again, that we see words like, I will pray in the English instead of being able to look directly at the Greek. Because we have one word for pray, whether you and I pray or whether Jesus prays. Same word. But in the Greek, there's two distinctly different words. And this word here is not a human prayer, like we pray to the Lord. This is a prayer that shows equality between the one asking. It's like a request between two equals. And this is the same word always used in the New Testament whenever Jesus prays to his Father. It's not like an inferior asking of a superior. It's one member of the Godhead asking of another. Not asking, requesting. And he already knows his will, so he already knows he's going to ask him to send the Spirit, and he's going to send the Spirit because they decided that in, in eternity past. So it's a completely different word. So he requests, he's going to request the Father to send them the comforter other than giving his own life for our sins you know the single greatest gift that jesus christ ever gave believers is the gift of god the holy spirit the apostles were not going to be left alone to manage things in the best way that they could in their own strength they were to receive another comforter to aid them in everything that they would do for the furtherance of the gospel 
And by the way, the only way that the apostles and you and I would ever be able to obey the commandments of God is how? Through divine assistance, divine empowerment. We could never prove our love for Jesus by obeying his commandments without the power of the Holy Spirit. So in order to show our love, we have to receive the Holy Spirit. We have to have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, as most of you probably already know, the Greek word for comforter is what? Paraclete is the way we pronounce it in the Greek. It's parakletos. Everybody say, it, say that. <laughs> parakletos. But we say paraclete to make it easy for you. Now, it is a word that is devised from two Greek words. Para, which means alongside of. And kaleo, which means one who is called. So literally, you put the two together, it means one who is called alongside of. Jesus was promising to send believers, one who would stand alongside of them in order to help them. Parakletos refers to a helper. That's a really good word for the one who comes alongside. Actually, we're going to find out he will indwell us. <laughs> That's how close alongside of us he'll be. Uh, helper or comforter. Those are the two closest words in the English that we have to parakletos or encourager. I'll talk about that in a minute. Now, I want to say this before I move on. The receiving of the Holy Spirit is conditional. Notice the word and. And I will pray the Father. The, the little conjunctive word and joins verse 15 to verse 16. You see, in other words, he's saying the Holy Spirit is only for the person who loves Jesus. Only for the person who loves Jesus and whose love is genuine and it is proven by the fact that he obeys his commandments. Also, notice that the Holy Spirit is only given because Jesus requests it, Right? It's not the person who requests it, it's Jesus who's requesting the Holy Spirit from his Father. Jesus is the mediator. He is the intercessor, the one who makes it possible for us to receive the Spirit. Now, we've looked at the Greek word for comfort. Do you know, have you ever thought about where our English word for comfort comes from? Comfort. It doesn't come from the Greek. Parakletos, that's a whole, you know, doesn't even sound similar, does it? It comes from Latin, yes. You peeked at your notes, didn't you? <laughs> you know that. Good. All right. So it comes from two. Very good. I never took Latin. Um, I had to take... Well, I took Spanish. I'm glad I did. And I had to take Greek. Had to. I had no choice and I hated it. But in the Lord's good timing, it, it's come out very conveniently. But it comes from two Latin words... Com, C-O-M, or con, C-O-N. I know in Spanish that means with. And forte. You all, if you're a musician, you know what forte means? With strength. If that's literate. Comfort means with strength. Now, we usually, when we think of comfort, what do you usually think of? You usually think of soothing or consoling kind of words. Like, oh, you poor little thing. I'm so, I feel so sorry for you with that little boo-boo on your head. <laughs> <laughs> but genuine comfort is comfort, it, it, the divine kind of comfort goes a whole lot deeper than just soothing words. True comfort strengthens us to go on. It's, it's words given with strength to keep on keeping on, to go on. To uh, This is what your leaders do. 
your your discussion group leaders and your encouragement leaders. They're there. They're, they're your encouragers. They're, they're they're the ones who encourage you not to give up. Keep on going even when you get weary and even when life just, you know, knocks you down and you get up again and you keep on keeping on. Uh, True comfort gives us the strength and the fortitude to not give up, to not grow discouraged, to not get weary in well-doing, and to face life with courage and with optimism. True comfort really, will not let us forget our responsibilities. I know I've had wonderful women, Christian sisters, who when I have been down and out and don't want to keep on going and just want to hide, you know how when we have troubles we just want to curl up like a a cocoon in our houses and not... Sisters in Christ that said, no, you've got responsibilities. You can't do that. You've got to keep on keeping on. Remember the promises of the Lord. That's true comfort. That's divine kind of comfort. And that's why there are Bible scholars out there who say that the best word for the comforter is the encourager. And certainly that idea should be included in our understanding of the Spirit's part in our lives. He's our comforter, our helper, and our encourager. Well, verse 15, Jesus spoke about the disciples' love for him. And in verse 16, he revealed his love for them by promising this divine helper. And we know that this helper was to be divine... I mean, he just says, I'll send you another comforter. But we know this is going to be a divine comforter because of another Greek word that, again, you would miss just looking at the English. But the Greeks, they're so specific about everything. You know, they have five words for love. We have one. They have two words for another. Now, we have to figure out what somebody means by the context when they say, I want another dessert. Okay, well, hmm, I only had an apple pie, so obviously they want another piece of apple pie. But how would we know if they want another? I don't want apple pie. I want the chocolate cake. Well, the Greeks get specific so you know exactly what they're saying. There are two words in Greek for another. One is heros, heteros, which means another kind. So if you didn't like your dessert, you'd say, I want another kind of dessert. And you'd say, heteros, heteros dessert. But if you wanted another, you just ate your apple pie and you wanted another exact like that one. You know, that was so good. I want another one just like it. You'd use the word alos. Now, which of those two Greek words was used for another comforter, do you think? Alos. I'm sending another exactly like me. Another of the same nature, same mind, everything. Jesus said, Alos parakletos. He was going to request the Father to send them another personal helper who would be exactly of the same essence as himself. Now, what therefore does that tell us about the Holy Spirit? and his identity. If he's going to be exactly like Jesus, the same essence and mind and spirit and nature as Jesus, what does that tell us? Well, number one, it tells us that the Holy Spirit is a person. Don't tell me it when you talk about the Holy Spirit. There are several things that irk me. One is when people say about my home state, Illinois. Yes, we make a lot of noise, especially those from Chicago. (laughs) But it is Illinois, all right? Second thing is when you talk about the book of Revelations and you put an S on it. It's the book of Revelation, singular. 
third thing that bothers me is when people call the Holy Spirit it. This is not Star Wars. It's not the force out there. And don't get the idea of Casper because it says the Holy Ghost. Yeah, it's not, you know, the Holy Spirit is a he. He is a person. Just as Jesus is a person. Not a mystical force. Not some eerie kind of ghost. Um, It also, in using the word alos, parakletos, it means that he is God. (laughs) Just as Christ is God. And it means that he is merciful, he is loving, he is patient, he is gracious, he is holy, he is just, he is completely sinless, he is long-suffering, he is whatever Jesus is, he is. He is eternal, and he is supernatural. He is everything that Jesus is except one thing. He has never been visible. Jesus made himself visible by taking upon himself human flesh. The Holy Spirit never did that and never will do that. One time he appeared in the form of a what? A dove. But uh, other than that, he's not visible. Now, it's interesting to realize that Christ himself was the original parakletos. Have you ever thought about that? What has he been doing for three and a half years with his men but comforting them and guiding them and helping them and encouraging them? He was the first God-sent one who came alongside to help and comfort. And that's exactly what he's doing in John 14, isn't it? Isn't he the comforter here? He's comforting his men just as he had been doing for those past three years when he walked alongside of them as their constant companion. And um, I'm not just making that up that Jesus was the first comforter, the first parakletos. It says it in 1 John 2, 1. It tells us there, this is the Apostle John writing in his first epistle. He says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And who is that advocate with the Father? It goes on and it says, Jesus Christ the righteous. Do you know in the Greek what that word advocate is? If you had a Greek Bible, it wouldn't say advocate. It would say parakletos. Same exact word as we find in John 14. So, the first paraclete was Christ. And then he went away, didn't he? He went away. But, because he went away, he sent another one just like himself to take his place on earth while he kept operating as our parakletos in heaven. He continues to be our helper in heaven. So this means, think about this, that we actually have two parakletos. We have two paracletes. We have the Lord Jesus in heaven interceding for us And we have the Holy Spirit on earth indwelling us. Now take that home and chew on it a while. Two. And they're both eternal. And they're both God. Wow. So what's limiting us in producing much fruit? One thing. Lack of commitment. In verse 16, the Lord added gravy. I don't know how you could add gravy to that, but he goes on. He always gives exceeding abundantly. He adds gravy to his wonderful words about the coming comforter when he says that he would never depart from them. He would abide with them forever. That's his promise of an abiding presence. He says that that he may abide with you forever. He had to go because he had to prepare a place for us. But the Holy Spirit would abide with us with believers forever. As you well know, there are lots 
lots of misconceptions. And I think that's why sometimes we stay away from discussing the Holy Spirit so much, but there's a lot of confusion these days about the biblical truth of the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's a large segment of the Christian population that believes you can lose the Holy Spirit and uh, get him back, you know, get him back and then lose him and, and so on. In other words, a saved person, a born-again person, can lose his or her salvation. And uh, what, that, what then becomes of the Lord's words here, though? I ask that question. What becomes of the Lord's words, not only here in this passage, but in many other passages, that the Comforter would abide with believers for how long? I mean, if that word forever wasn't in there, okay, well, maybe we don't keep him forever, but it says forever. And if it wasn't so, would he have told us that? No, if it weren't so, he wouldn't have said it. He doesn't lie. He would have said something like this. Instead, he would have said, and he will abide within you as long as you don't sin some sin that is unpardonable. He didn't say that. He said the Comforter would abide with them forever. Do you know what that means? I got to thinking about that. That means that uh, when we're grieving, or maybe the worst grief in our lives that we've ever encountered, when we're grieving, or when we're lying sick, and you know, when you're when you're really sick, you can't even hardly pray, you can't think, you can't read. When you're sick, who's there? When you're grieving, who's there? Forever. When you're dying, when you're passing over into eternity, who is there with you? The Holy Spirit. You know what else that means? When you stand before Jesus Christ one day at the judgment seat, who is going to be there with you? In you? It means the Holy Spirit. That's why, you see, when unsaved people who don't have the Spirit in them, when they stand before the great white throne judgment... What does Jesus say to them? I never knew you. They're standing there alone. I wouldn't want to stand before God alone. Just me. I'm going to be standing there with Christ as my advocate, my one paraclete, and the Holy Spirit with me. He'll never leave me forever. And and that's why he knows us, because he dwells within us. It gets even more wonderful as we go on but just think about that he'll never leave you even when you're dying he will be there with you well since the disciples did not have the new testament scriptures because they hadn't written them yet uh they might have wondered who jesus was talking about here when he says he's going to send them another comforter who was this one just like himself who would come and take his place alongside of them so because they didn't know They don't have our advantage. In verse 17, he tells them, he says, even the spirit of truth. And as it tells us, uh, states in 1 John, here it states in 1 John 5, 6, he is truth. So not only is he the spirit of truth, it also says that the spirit is truth. Who else was truth that we just learned about a couple weeks ago? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the Spirit is not personified truth, as Jesus was. Rather, he is the Spirit of truth. Truth is his great instrument in all of his operations. He is the one who inspired the word of truth. What's the word of truth? You got one right in front of you? 
the Bible, the Word of God. He's also the one, not only did he inspire the truth, he illumines the truth. He illuminates the Word to men. He is the one right now, if you're getting this, he is the one illuminating it to your mind. If there was an unbeliever in here, they would go, what is she talking about? I remember reading the scripture before I was saved, and I could not make heads or tails of it. You should see that first Bible. I have question marks all over the place saying, what does this mean? There was no one there to illuminate it for me. He inspired it, he illuminates it to us, and he instructs us in it. Apart from the spirit of truth, men cannot know or understand truth. That's why uh, it says the unsaved world of men cannot receive him. They cannot receive him without first obeying Christ by coming unto him. As soon as they come unto him, they receive the spirit. And the apostle Paul spoke of this, as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians when he said, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Where are they given to us? In the Word. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But then he says, the natural man receiveth not the things of God, of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. You ever try to explain some things to an unsaved person? That's foolishness to them. And he says, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit is not visible to people. You can't see. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Like the wind. You know, you can't see the wind, but what can you see? You can see the effects of the wind, can't you? Just like you can see the effects of the Holy Spirit. In a changed life, for example. But because the the Holy Spirit isn't visible, people don't believe in his existence. And so they don't know him because they cannot know him until they believe in Christ. And that makes sense. If the world did not recognize or receive the first paraclete, the Lord Jesus Christ, who they could visibly see, it stands to reason that they're not going to recognize or receive the second paraclete, who they cannot visibly see. Romans 8, 9 makes it clear that if a person does not have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, if a person doesn't have the Spirit, he is not saved. Here's what it says in Romans 8, 9. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Do you understand that? If a person does not have the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? He is unsaved. Now, you know what that refutes? That refutes universalism. There are people, and I was one time, a long time ago, in a church where the pastor, minister, I don't think he was saved, but he actually believed in universalism that everybody in the whole world was saved. And I was a brand new Christian, and I brought up this verse to him. I said, well, what about, it says, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Didn't really have an answer, so he went into farming, which was good. That was good. Nice guy, but he wasn't saved. Um, And he really did go into farming. Anyway, um, if a person doesn't have the Spirit, he's not saved. So that that means everybody in the whole world is not saved. (laughs) Uh, So if you don't have... Also, it means that you don't have Christians, okay? You don't have a true born-again Christian who later, at some point in his life, 
asks to receive the Spirit and then receives the Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? You don't have... Let's say I was, I was born again in 1972, but then in 1981, um, I, asked, I asked for the Holy Spirit, and I was then filled. You see, because what that means is that before 1981, I wasn't really a Christian. Because if you don't have the Spirit, you're none of His. You see what I'm saying? Besides, I don't ask for the Spirit. Who asked for the Spirit? Jesus is the one who requested the Spirit. And this also refutes the popular idea that God is in everyone and everything, even in the rocks and in the trees. I don't know what that's called. I can't think of the term for it. But it's part of New Ageism, that God is everywhere. What's that term? Pantheism is what I thought. Is that, is that pantheism? That's the word that came in my mind, so that might be right. But that refutes that. Well, anyway, I could get off on my high horse, but let's move on. The Lord, in verse 17, was preparing his men for the fact that the world in general, the world in general was not going to run to them with open arms and embrace their spirit-empowered message and lives any more than the world had run to Jesus with open arms and embraced him and, and loved him, right? And this was evidenced, actually, on the very day that the Holy Spirit did come to indwell the apostles, and they were suddenly able to speak in uh, the many examples Existing languages of those gathered around them so as to communicate the gospel to everyone. You know what the conclusion of the unbelievers in that crowd that day, the day of Pentecost? You know, here all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes down and uh, all the apostles are able to speak any language, Greek, Roman, you know, Chinese, whoever was gathered there in front of them. And they could all understand the gospel in their native language. You know what the unbelievers said about them? Hmm. It was early in the morning, but they'd already been what? Drinking. Sipping the bottle. These guys are drunk. That's their conclusion about the works of the Holy Spirit. Well, <clears throat> the work of the Holy Spirit, in other words, is just as strange to the unbelieving world as the work of Christ was. What the Lord went on to say at the end of verse 17 now is what is called a classic dispensational statement. Classic dispensational statement. Dispensationalism means that God works in different ages in different ways. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers. He would come down upon believers. He would anoint believers for specific works or, or, you know, like prophets. He would come upon Isaiah and he would declare the word of the Lord. But the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers. The Lord works in different ages in different ways. The church age is unique in that the Holy Spirit indwells us. He said in verse 17b, But ye know him. The world doesn't know the Spirit, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you. How did he dwell with them? In the person of Christ. He was in Christ, right? He was filled with the Holy Spirit from the very beginning. So he's, you've known him. You didn't know you knew him, but you knew him in me. Because the Spirit has been in me the whole time I've been with you. But, he goes on, he says, You know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. The, the word but there speaks of a contrast between this new statement and what he had just said. He said the world couldn't receive him because it couldn't see him or know him, but the disciples did know him because he dwelt with them. He dwelt with them in the person of Christ. Um, now, the Holy Spirit... His work is to convict men of sin, 
and to convince them of Christ's person. Did the Jews recognize the Holy Spirit in Christ and in his works? Remember what the Jews concluded about the works and words of Jesus Christ? Remember when he was casting out demons? And I think, I can't remember what he did. He specifically healed a deaf, dumb, blind guy or something. And they said, you're doing your works in the power of Beelzebub, Satan. That was their conclusion about the work of the Holy Spirit. And remember when he rebuked them, he did not rebuke them for blaspheming him. He, he rebuked them for blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. However, the disciples knew the Holy Spirit because they recognized the Holy Spirit's work through Jesus Christ. So you see the difference? They knew his work was of God. So they didn't know they knew the Holy Spirit, but they did know the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowered men and women to accomplish God's work in the Old Testament days, but he did not indwell them. So this is a new, a brand new thing. Furthermore, the Greek tense, verb tense in verse 17 tells us that the indwelling of the Spirit would be permanent. We already saw that he said forever. Now the Greek tense supports that. It would be an uninterrupted residence within believers. He wouldn't come and go as he did in the Old Testament days. Um, He would reside permanently within the believer. And that was, by the way, that was actually promised. This isn't new. This was promised by Ezekiel back in Ezekiel 37, 14. Although believers might grieve the Holy Spirit... And we might quench the Holy Spirit, yet he will never be taken from us. Now, there's a difference between being indwelt and being filled with the Spirit. Being indwelt is the Spirit indwelling us forever. Being filled with the Spirit is us giving ourselves totally to the Spirit. There's, there's a difference, and I can't go down that road right now. But Jesus is promising his men that the Spirit of God would not be taken from them the way that he would be. You know, he was going to be taken from them. That's why they're sad, right? He was taken from them, but now he's saying, but the Spirit won't. He'll be with you forever, eternally. That's a fantastic promise. The same Spirit of God the disciples had seen working in him now would be working in them. No wonder they'd be able to do greater works than he did because there were more of them. and They'd have a more full gospel. They'd reach the whole world, etc., Isn't that a fantastic thought? I mean, it's hard for us to put our minds around this. How, you know, the Spirit can be in us. Christ can be. We're going to talk about this in a minute. But God is actually in us. Christ is in us. You know, the hope of glory. How can the triune Godhead be in us? Well, that's part of the mystery of the the indwelling presence of God in us, in the believers. That's why it's called a mystery. (laughs) It is a mystery, and we're, uh, we're unable to grasp it. We just believe it. By faith, and we can see the results of it. I know the results of it because I know I have a completely changed life. I know when I watch some of the movies about Jesus Christ, oh my goodness, it's just like the spirit within me, goosebumps and everything, and I cry and I weep. I remember when I watched it, Itao. Oh, oh my goodness, that is just proof to me that that's the spirit within me making me cry and weep over people be- getting saved. And anyway, you know the, the spirit is within you, don't you? I hope you do. I hope you've all been born again. We true believers have the very essence of God planted within us. <laughs> we have a supernatural divine helper abiding within us. And he is ready and will. If we yield to him, 
He is ready and willing to accomplish great and mighty things through us. You can accomplish great and mighty things. You have God. The empowerment of God. Like I said, what is keeping us from turning this world upside down? We just lack. Well, we lack confidence. You know, we don't. We just, oh, I don't have the ability to do. Well, just stand up and open your mouth and the Spirit will give you the words to say. You know, just trust in Him and, 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 and uh, be committed. That's the main problem we have in the church today, isn't it? Church, meaning the whole body of Christ, is a lack of commitment. Well, in verse 18, the next verse, he continues by assuring his men that he would not be leaving them comfortless. And again, you probably know the Greek word is orphanos. I will not leave you as orphans. Remember how for the very first time in John 13, 33, he had addressed his men. Once Judas Iscariot left, for the very first time he addressed his men as little children. And he now is, you know, he's the parent, and he's saying, I'm not going to leave you guys, my dear little children, as orphans. These remaining 11 men belong to him. And he wasn't going to abandon them. He was the good shepherd, right? So he wasn't going to leave his sheep helpless in a hostile world full of wolves. They were not going to be forsaken orphans left to struggle through life without a defender and without a comforting parent. And then by way of the words, I will come to you in verse 18, he was indirectly promising his men once again that he would rise from the dead. Hadn't he just told them he was going to die? He'd been telling them that for a long time. I'm going to die on the third day. I'm going to rise again. Here he says, I will come to you. Well, if he's going to die, how could he come to them unless he resurrected from the dead? So you see, indirectly, he's saying, when he says, I will come to you, he's saying, I'm going to resurrect from the dead. He would not go out of existence. (laughs) He would come to them once again. Think about that. Of course he would. Duh. (laughs) Of course he would. Think about it. Had he not said that the Father was in him and he was in the Father? Hadn't he just said that? Verse 10 and 11. Which he says again in verse 20. Is God eternal? Is God eternal? Yes. God is eternal. So, if he says God the Father is in me and I'm in him, being in God means that Jesus was bound to live forever. God was in him. He was God. (laughs) He was bound to rise from the dead. You can't keep deity dead. (laughs) In fact, he was never dead. Just his body. You know, he couldn't use his body there for a while. So he tells them, I will come to you, which after the resurrection is exactly what he did. Before he ascended to heaven, what did he do? He appeared to his men and 120 other believers and several resurrection appearances yet this isn't what he's directly referring to here he did appear to them before he ascended to heaven but that's not directly what he's talking about and he wasn't talking about the rapture either he had been talking about the rapture back in um in verse three but here he is not speaking about i will come you know again he didn't say if he had said i will come for you that would have been talking about the rapture But here he just says, I will come to you. So what is he speaking about in verse 18? What he's speaking about was the Holy Spirit coming to reside in the lives of his followers. For then he, Christ, would be there because of his union with the Godhead. And that is why Jesus, when he was ascending up to heaven, what was the last thing he said to his men? And lo, I am, I am with you always. Okay, how could he be with them always? 
you know, well, the Spirit is with him, Christ is with him, and God is with him. And that's, <laughs> that's part of the great mystery. It says that we have the Holy Spirit abiding within us, John fourteen seventeen. We have Christ indwelling us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it also says, 1 John four twelve. if we love one another, God dwelleth in us. So I'm not just making it up. It's in the scripture. Who dwells in us? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The believer is made eternal. Think about this. This internal divine presence is the source of eternal life. That's why the believer is made eternal by the eternal presence of the Godhead within him or within her. That's why from the moment of salvation, from the very moment you are saved, born again, you have present tense what? Eternal life. It's not like when you die, you'll get eternal life. You have eternal life from the moment you are saved because the eternal Godhead moves in and you become eternal. Uh, And Jesus' promises that the Spirit indwells the believer forever. So he is with us always. So the Christian, do you understand now why the Christian, the genuine Christian, can never experience the second death? We can never, ever experience eternal separation from God. Why? Because he indwells us. So we, and, and, and that's why Paul could say, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Why? We can't be separated from what is within us. We, we will live eternally. We can never, ever experience the second death. Is that something that can give your troubled heart comfort? It should. Keep your focus on eternity. You will never die. Your body will go in the grave for a while, but even it will be resurrected in a new glorified body. That's truth you can count on. That's change you can believe in. (laughs) Now, in verse 19, the Lord did not speak directly about his resurrection appearances to his men when he said, or did speak, I'm sorry, he did speak about his resurrection appearances when he said, yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. Until his yet future second coming, do you know the world saw the last of Jesus when they crucified him and tucked him into a tomb? He never appeared in his resurrection glory to an unbeliever, did he? No unbelievers ever saw him. No unbeliever has ever seen him since they put him in that tomb. But the disciples and 500 other true believers did see him again on several of his resurrection appearances. Now, the Greek form of the verb see, which uh, Jesus used when he but said, but ye see me, again, is given in the present tense, which means not only would they see him in his resurrection appearances, but they would see him continually with what? The eyes of faith. I've never seen Jesus, but I see him with the eyes of faith. I see him in his word. I see him in my heart. And then he gives this wonderful, I mean, it's like, how can it get better? But it just keeps getting better. He says in verse 19, because I live, ye shall live also. Well, that's what we've been talking about. There it is. I wouldn't have told you if it wasn't true. (laughs) There he was on the 14th of Nisan, the day of Passover, the day he would die in the upper room, death staring him right in the face. 
And he knew that his body was going to lie cold in a tomb before the clock ticked off one more day. And what did he say? I li- Because I live. Because I live. And again, he used the timeless present tense because what he's saying here is because I continually live. Undying life. He says, because I continuously live, ye shall live also. Death could never, ever, ever rob him of his undying eternal life. It robbed him, as I said, of the use of his body for a while. But he even did things when he was, his body was lying in the tomb. You know, he did things in his spirit body, his glorified body. He went down into the depart- compartment of Hades and took the captives up to heaven and all that kind of stuff. But there, you know, so his body was not usable for a while. But there was no way death could take his life from him. No way. So it just goes to stay. Of course he had to raise from the dead. And of course you and I will rise from the dead. So with the absolute divine confidence only he could possess in the midst of imminent death, Jesus Christ told his dearly beloved followers that they too were the possessors of undying life because they would partake of the very life he lived when the spirit came to indwell them. Because Jesus lives, we believers shall live, continue to live as long as he lives. And how long will he live? forever forever and that's what i mean by the promise of an assured perpetuation assured perpetuation well then one more promise in verses 20 and 21 he promises his men an astonishing position and we've really sort of already talked about this but those who love christ proven by their obedience to his commandments enjoy a supernatural union with god The triune God not only indwells us, but we are united with God and Christ, which is exactly what he says when he says, uh, what is this, verse 20? Um, At that day ye shall know that I am in the Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Now think about this. Again, this goes to logic. Since Christ is in the Father, and believers are in Christ, what does that mean? If A equals B and B equals C, that means A equals C. If Christ is in the Father and we're in Christ, that means we're also in the Father. You follow me? And this mysterious interlocking of persons, which is unfolded in greater detail in the New Testament, um, is yet another guarantee of the eternal security of the believer. Now, of course, at this particular time, the disciples had not even figured out that Christ was in the Father and the Father was in him. That's why Philip said, you know, show us the Father and and it sufficeth us. So they hadn't figured that out. So Jesus knew that they weren't going to understand that because they were in him and the Holy Spirit was in them, that means that they were also in the Father. They weren't going to get that yet, were they? But he says, at that day you shall know. And what day was he speaking of? The day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and enlightened them. Think about, here's a shining of example of how this worked, okay? Peter, from the time the Lord spoke this to them in the upper room to the day of Pentecost was about 53 days, okay? Only 53 days in between. Would that be enough for Peter to run over to the Jerusalem seminary and study all these things and learn about them? <laughs> they wouldn't be teaching about them for one thing, but no. Did Peter quick get his New Testament open and start reading like crazy? No, hadn't been written yet. So what was the change from Peter cussing out the Lord and denying him, 
you know, denied him. And the third time, he threw in some swear words. What's the difference between that and 53 days later, him preaching a sermon that clearly, scripturally, powerfully relayed to his large audience exactly who Jesus is, exactly who the Father is, how the Son and the, and the Father are related, why Jesus came, why he died, why he resurrected, and what all this meant to Israel. What was the difference in Peter? What caused the difference in Peter? One thing. Well... The Holy Spirit came, and the Holy Spirit then took all the things Peter had ever read in the Old Testament, and he took all the things he had ever heard from the lips of Jesus and called them to his remembrance, and all the things he had ever seen him do, works and everything, and he took all those things, and the light went off, and Peter got it. That's like on the road to Emmaus. I would have loved to have been one of those disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus starts explaining to them from Moses and the prophets all about him. You know, Jesus is in the entire Bible. And he, Jesus himself is teaching them, here I was way back in Genesis. You know, here I am. And Abraham sacrificing. He went through all the types, all the prophecies. And the light bulb went off. Uh, that's what, you know, warms my heart as a teacher is when the light bulbs go off. And that's what happened to Peter because he received the Holy Spirit. Totally different man. Everything made sense. Everything that previously had been muddled and tangled and confusing in his mind just was made clear. Well, then the Lord finishes up where he started. Look at verse 21. He says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved in my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Not only is Christ's life the believer's life, but Christ's love is also ours. The person who enjoys all of these fantastic promises and comes into divine union, not only with Christ and with the Holy Spirit and with his Father, Jesus says, is the individual who proves his salvation love by obedience to the commandments of God. So he'd come full circle to where he started when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he promised that he will reward those who genuinely love him by a special manifestation of himself to their gaze of, of faith. And I trust that your spiritual eyes have seen the glorious manifestation of Christ as we have studied now for some, I've lost track, eight or nine years we've been studying the life of Jesus Christ. He says he will manifest himself to those who love him, and uh, especially those who study his life. He said, come unto me and learn of me, and that's exactly what you're doing. So I know this promise is true because he has manifested himself to me in a way that before I studied his life, I never, never, never saw Jesus the way I do today. And I really hope that's true for all of you. Thank you for your patience. We got it all in, and it's exactly 1130. <gasps> 1230. Oh, I went an hour over. <laughs> All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for these four very, very special uh, supernatural promises of truth that you have given to us in your infinite mercy and grace. We thank you for making us alive to what you are doing in the world and in using us in whatever small ways as you continue to carry out your purposes and plans. Thank you that we live in these exciting times of these last days. And thank you, Father, for our helper, our comforter, our paraclete, the divine, sweet Holy Spirit. 
who has come to indwell us if we truly are yours. And thank you for the supernatural life that he makes possible for us and the eternal life that you have already given to those of us who have trusted in you. Now, we ask that you'd go with every woman, take her home safely, give her a wonderful light, uh, week where she can be light and salt for you. Give us divine appointments that we might witness to others about you and invite other women to this study. And we'll give you the praise uh, for our lives this week. Bring us back next, uh, safely next Monday, for we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. <laughs> 